Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Kings. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, we are going to look at a story in the Bible that is the uh, strangest game of will it float ever, all right? Uh, Yeah, will it float is in the Bible, and we're going to look at that today at 2 Kings chapter 6. As you're turning there, just a quick review from the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Elisha, and uh, Elisha was a prophet of God who followed the most famous prophet in the Old Testament, a guy named Elijah, and um, so Elijah was Elisha's predecessor, Elisha was his protege, his apprentice, if you will, and uh, God took Elisha, or Elijah, up into heaven, and uh, he, uh, Elisha, or Elijah, before he went to heaven, offered to Elisha uh, an opportunity. He said, I want to give you something, uh, what do you want? And Elisha said, I would like a double portion of your spirit, meaning I want to have a, uh, a ministry that is twice as effective as yours has been. Uh, and that's saying something, because Elisha had, had been a, a powerful uh, uh, prophet of God, had done some amazing, amazing things, worked wondrous, wondrous miracles. God had done all kinds of powerful things through his ministry. And uh, Elisha said, I want to do that times two. And so um, the Lord granted him that. And so what we find in the life of Elisha, even though he's not as famous as Elijah, we find that he worked many more miracles than Elijah did. Uh, He's referred to in the Bible 31 times as the man of God. Uh, That was kind of his nickname in the Bible. And every time we see the phrase man of God uh, used to name this guy, it's uh, when he was getting ready to work some kind of a miracle. Every time there was some type of a miracle that was going to be worked through the life of Elisha, uh, he was referred to in Scripture as the man of God. Now, by comparison, Moses was only uh, called the man of God six times. And Moses was a pretty influential character in the Old Testament. And Elijah... The guy that came right before Elisha was called man of God seven times. And so, uh, again, you've heard me say this every week during the series, but I think it's important for us to note that this guy was a big deal in terms of what he was able to do in the world uh, for the kingdom of God and for the Lord. And so today, we're going to talk about one of his stranger miracles, one of the weirder things that happened uh, in his ministry in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So let's go ahead and read there. One day, the group of prophets had come to Elisha. Now, let's just pause right there for a second, all right? This group of prophets had come to Elisha, and Elisha had a following. Uh, Most likely, it was a school of some sort. There were a a, a group of prophets, we know, that worked along with him. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we heard about a a widow of one of those prophets. Uh, That prophet had died, and we heard the story about this widow. And um, uh, so we know that there were these prophets that followed along with him, and some of them uh, were like prophets-to-be, if you will. They were students. They were in seminary. Uh, They were being trained. Now, not much is known about Elisha's life, 
Uh, in fact, apart from his miracles, there's not a lot described about his life in the Bible. Uh, but this particular thing, this particular story, and the fact that he had this, uh, this following, if you will, of a bunch of students, uh, tells us a lot about how he spent much of his time. He apparently spent a lot of his time working with these protégés, uh, teaching them and training them. He had been uh, Elijah's protégé and student for four years before he became the prophet. And uh, so here he is investing in the next generation and doing it to an even greater extent than Elijah had done. And so anyway, here we go. One day, the group of prophets came to Elisha and told him, as you can see, this place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River where there are plenty of logs. There we can build a new place for us to meet. All right, he told him, go ahead. Please come with us, someone suggested. I will, he said. So he went with them. When they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. Now, let's pause right there for just a second. Um, it's, it's probable that these students didn't have a whole lot of money, and the school was probably not all that well-funded. And um, uh, it, the reason we know this is because they didn't go out and hire some uh, construction firm. They didn't call up the Amish people and say, hey, will you go build us a barn to meet in or anything like that. Uh, they uh, had to go out and build it themselves. And um, uh, we also know that this group of people probably didn't have a whole lot of money because when we studied about the widow of a prophet just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we found that she was very poor. She had a lot of debt. She didn't have much money. And uh, she needed some help uh, to take care of her financial problems. And so, uh, th th you know, we've heard it said many, many times when we look at ministry throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, even in today's world, um, unless you are a televangelist, ministry really doesn't seem to pay all that well. <laughs> so uh, if you are going to be a part of what God is doing, don't expect there to be big financial compensation. Um, God doesn't pay us uh, for um, what we do in earthly rewards as much as he does in heavenly rewards. God is preparing things for us in the next life because that's the life that's truly, truly important. And so uh, we've got to remember that when we're volunteering for things and serving in church, uh, we are being compensated, but it's not in earthly things. It's in heavenly rewards. And uh, so next time you're volunteering in kids' ministry and you feel like strangling one of those children, just remember if you don't murder them, it's a jewel in your crown in heaven, all right? Uh, <laughs> if you do, well, it's prison time. So uh, anyway, brace yourself. Uh, ministry, surprise, surprise, doesn't, uh, uh, isn't the most lucrative business in the world. And so here's these guys, this poor school. They're out there working really hard, and uh, they didn't hire a construction tool. And what we see next is that they, they, some of them had to borrow their tools. That's how poor they were. They didn't have their own tools. So here we go. Uh, but one of them was cutting a tree. His axe head fell into the river. Oh, sir, he cried, it was a borrowed axe. Where did it fall, the man of God asked. Now there's your clue that a miracle's about to happen because the scripture refers to him as the man of God. When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. Then the axe head floated to the surface. Grab it, Elisha said, and the man reached out and grabbed it. Now, what a strange little story, and why in the world did God include this miracle in the Bible? Have you ever read something in the Bible and you say, what's that there for? Anybody? I mean, there's plenty of weird things in the Bible that uh, we get to. There's this interesting story about Elisha, um, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to get into this story today, but it's one of those things that I have, have wondered about for a long time. Why is that in there? He's walking up a hill. And some teenagers come along, the Bible says this group of youths 
came along and they started making fun of him. And they said, go on up there, you bald head. Go on up there, you bald head, as he was walking up the hill. Apparently, he didn't have hair. And uh, I don't know if he was offended because he uh, was follically challenged or if he um, was offended because they were mocking the man of God or what the deal was. But the Bible just casually says, and he turned and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the forest and mauled 42 of them. 42. Now, that's a big group of youth making fun of him. When I first read it and start, you start reading the story, you think of a handful of kids like, yeah, 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 you're bald, nah, 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 you know, making fun of him. Uh, and it turns out there was at least 42 of them, probably more than that, because uh, you know the secret to surviving a bear attack, don't you? You don't have to be the fastest person there. You just have to be faster than one other guy right? <laughs> you just have to be faster than your friend. If there's ever a bear, just run faster than your friend and you're good. And uh, so this bear came out and at least 42 people got mauled. Um, and it's like, why did God include that story in the Bible? These are the strange questions that roll through my head. So anyway, it's there and it's in the story of Elisha. Uh, but today we're looking at this particular story about the axe head. And why is this in here? Why was it so important that God take a few uh, Verses of scripture, it, scripture to include this story about something that shouldn't float uh, and that didn't float, but then it did. It sank to the bottom of the river, and then all of a sudden, here it is floating again. What does this axe head teach us? And uh, it teaches us a couple of things. If you would, uh, and you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, this floating axe head teaches us that God cares about the details of your earthly life. God is very interested in the small stuff. Now, notice this guy didn't directly ask for help. He didn't say, hey, Elisha, this thing fell in the water. Could you do something to get it back? He just kind of in a panicked moment was like, ah, it was borrowed. You ever borrowed something and broken it? I did once when I was a senior in high school. I had borrowed a guitar from somebody and... Um, my girlfriend and I were goofing around, and she tripped and fell and landed on the guitar and snapped the neck in half. I felt about this big. I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Uh, a guy named Lance I had borrowed this guitar from. I was thinking he was going to kill me. I didn't have the money to replace it, and he completely forgave me. He was like, it's no big deal. I've got another guitar. And I, I was like, wow, that's grace. So... I know what this guy's feeling like. I've borrowed something, it's broken, you have that panic moment, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And uh, sure enough, as he's panicking, the man of God steps forward and begins to intervene. Now many times in our lives, we are like this guy. We have something small in our life that doesn't seem that significant, it's just an axe head. It's just a guitar. It's not like, you know, it's a $10,000 problem. It was a pawn, star, a pawn, store, pawn store guitar. I can't get the words to come out. I've been watching too much History Channel, Pawn Stars. Um, it was a pawn store guitar. It was, you know, not a significant amount of money. It wasn't that big a deal to replace. Uh, but uh, still, it, I, it never occurred to me when that happened to pray, Lord, help me with this problem. Now, many times we pray to God all the time about stuff. You know, you have a significant problem, like your transmission just went out. Anybody got $1,800, $2,000 you can just throw out for a new transmission? Yeah, I didn't think so. Most of us aren't running around with a big, big extra um, chunk of cash in our bank account for a financial emergency like that. And so when those things come up, all of a sudden we hit our knees. Oh, Lord, help me with this big problem, right? You get 
stricken with some kind of a disease. You have cancer or you think you might have cancer and you're getting a biopsy and you're going in for testing and all of a sudden that's something really to pray about. But oftentimes we don't pray about a head cold, do we? We don't pray about the small stuff. There's something about us that one either thinks God doesn't care about this or God's too important for this too. This is just small stuff. I shouldn't bug him. And uh, uh, the, the third option is we are so out of tune with God that we don't look for miracles everywhere. What do I mean by that? God is so interested even in the small details in your life that he's interested in working little miracles. Oftentimes we're looking for the big thing, the winning lottery ticket or the cure from diabetes or uh, we're looking for God to show up in some massive, massive way and he's like, you know what? I worked a miracle for you today in that you ate and your intestines worked. We don't look at the small stuff. We don't pay attention to the little details that God is at work around us all the time. He pays attention to the little stuff, and he's not too important to pay attention to the little stuff. Did you know you are not a burden to your heavenly father? He's really interested in the little things that are going on in your life. Many times we don't come to him with the small details of our life, but he's interested in things like your car insurance and your computer virus and your broken lawnmower. He's interested in the fact that your cell phone battery is bad and that you have a water bill that you can't really afford this month because your kid left the water running in the backyard for a day and you didn't notice it. Or um, He cares about your leaky plumbing or the broken light or your garage door opener that doesn't work. He cares about your homework. He cares about the little stuff, that TPS report that you have to write that you just hate writing every single month. God cares about those small details. Many times we think, we think I don't want to burden him, but that's just silly. He's interested. Have you ever noticed that a toddler learning to speak, a young child, two, three years old, doesn't care about burdening you with the most annoying little thing? They're not worried about you know, what you're thinking about or that you've got other stuff going on. They just come in and it's like, mommy and daddy love me. Uh, my babysitter loves me. My grandparents love me. I'm cute. Everybody loves me, right? Uh, when you're little, isn't it great? And uh, uh, the world is, at, at, is your oyster. It's just right there, uh, right for the picking. You could do whatever you want and have a blast. And you can go up to somebody and you can tell them anything and they're going to be interested. Well, that's the way is God with us. That's the way God is with us. No matter how old and wise we get, no matter how grizzled we get, no matter how much we change as we grow older, at 70 years old, you're still a toddler to the king of the universe. At 80 years old, you still don't know anything compared to him. And so when you come to him with anything, he leans in. What is it? Oh, you want to talk about Peppa Pig? I'm listening. He cares. He is fascinated with the little things that go on in our lives because he is fascinated with you. Scripture says that the Lord watches us while we sleep. 
If you're a parent, have you ever done that? Grandparents, watch that grandbaby sleeping. You're like, oh my goodness, it's just so precious because they're not wrecking anything right now. But you could just sit and watch that chest rise and fall as they breathe and you admire that child. This is how the Lord feels about you. He's interested in the little things, the axe heads in your life. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin praying about everything. The Bible calls it praying without ceasing. So here, here's your homework assignment this week, one of two homework assignments related to today's message. First of all, attune yourself to God's earthly work by praying about everything. Now here's what I mean. Even the little stuff, talk to God about it. And you'll begin to see God work in little things. Why? Because we prayed and then he answered and started working. And no, God's not like some cosmic vending machine where you put in a couple of prayer coins and then A12, plop, you get out a Snickers bar or whatever it is that you wanted. That's not the way God works. What happens when we pray, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. As you begin to pray about things, you are being attuned to the spiritual realm and what God is doing in that realm and how it affects even our physical realm, and then you see him at work everywhere. Oh my gosh, it's awesome what God is doing. He is at work everywhere around us. You go out for a walk and, or a run and, and you get a stitch in your side and you're tired and your chest hurts, that's a moment to recognize God is at work because you know what he's doing? He's created this thing called oxygen that's floating around in the air that when we breathe it in, our lungs can absorb it. And we spew out the other gases and the carbon dioxide and the, the things like that that our body doesn't need and plants reuse those. I mean, there's this crazy, crazy miracle the way just breathing works. And so as you've got this stitch in your side and you're, instead of complaining, oh, dear God, you know, Lord, thank you for the miracle of breath. He is at work in everything around us all the time. Attune yourself to God by praying about everything. God is interested in the details of your earthly life. The second thing that this passage teaches us, though, from a uh, macro-biblical perspective, we've looked at the micro-perspective, God's interested in the little stuff of your earthly life, but from a huge Bible perspective, God cares about the details of your eternal life. Write that down. God cares about the details of your eternal life. This passage shows us this. Now, how does this passage show us this? There's something you've got to understand. As a follower of Jesus, when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, everything in Scripture from beginning to end points to the person of Jesus Christ. So what does this axe head teach us about the person of Jesus Christ? What does this axe head teach us about what Jesus came to do and, and to accomplish here on earth? Well, it, it's a great picture exactly of what Jesus came to do. God cares about the details of your eternal life. We're going to read a lot from the book of Romans. So your second um, uh, assignment here is as uh, we're looking at a bunch of verses from Romans today, I want to encourage you to get out the book of Romans this week. And your homework assignment is to read through Romans chapter 3 all the way through Romans chapter 10. In your personal devotional life, read Romans 3 through 10. 
read those passages of scripture, some of the most theologically rich portions of the Bible are in the book of Romans. I mean, it is just powerful stuff. And so you're going to attune yourself to the work of God by praying about everything, even the little stuff this week, and you're going to attune yourself to God's eternal work by reading through, Rome, or through Romans 3 through 10. Now, the Acts, let's get back to how does this Acts point to the person of Jesus. The Acts obeyed natural laws. When it fell into the water, what did it do? It sank. Natural laws, gravity, physics, clunk. It sank and it sank fast. Why? Because this thing was made of iron and it fell all the way to the bottom of the, the water there and, I mean, lost, gone. Now, we are like the axe head. We have a natural state. Romans 6, or 3.23 and Romans 6.23 describes our natural state. Look at Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned. How many people? Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We are all sinners. That's our natural state. My kids and I were sitting around last night. We were having a family devotion. We were talking about it. Um, you know, our baby's innocent. Uh, well, in one sense, yes, babies are innocent because they've not committed their own sin yet. But they're not innocent because we have all inherited the sin of Adam. When we are born as human beings, we are born naturally sinful. Uh, you've heard me ask this before, and I, I love this illustration because it's so perfectly um, uh, describes what we are like. Have you ever had to teach a child to lie? Nobody ever has to teach a child to be lie, to lie or to be selfish or to, to poke their little brother in the eye uh, or, or to do all of the obnoxious things that children do to each other. Uh, you don't have to teach a criminal to be a criminal. Now, they might study it to get better at it, but you don't have to teach them to be sinful and to pursue that kind of lifestyle. Those things come very naturally to us. What do we have to teach our children? We have to teach them to share. We have to teach them to be kind. We have to teach them to be grateful. And then what do we struggle with our whole lives? We struggle with being kind. We struggle with being grateful. We struggle with not being selfish. We struggle with all of these things that we were taught as infants. Why? Because we are naturally broken. We are naturally sinful. Just like the axe head. Romans 6.23. What does this say? For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are getting paid and it's payment that you deserve. When you work at Applebee's and you wait tables and you get paid your, you know, pathetic minimum wage that you get paid for being a, a waiter or a waitress, um, you get paid that for working the job, right? You don't show up, you're not going to get paid. Wages. Well, guess what? As far as sin is concerned, we've all shown up. We show up for work every day. And the wages of our sin, the payment we deserve, is death. Scripture goes on and teaches us that not just physical death, but spiritual death separated from God for eternity. This is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. In order for an item to no longer be lost, our souls, God had to defy the natural order. This is what he did with the axe head. 
In order for this natural thing, this axe head, to not be lost, God defied the natural order, didn't he? He did something miraculous to make it float. And in order for our souls to no, no longer be lost, God had to defy the natural order. Now, the instrument that Elisha used to make this axe head float was a stick. And um, uh, I love to, to look at the original languages that the Bible was written. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And uh, this particular story was written in Hebrew. So I looked up the Hebrew word for stick to see what this word really uh, was all about. You know, was, why? What's so significant about a stick? Well, I think this is huge. Uh, when when uh, I found out the word was uh, etase. Everybody say etase. Uh, that's the Hebrew word that's translated here, stick. But most of the time, that word is translated in the Old Testament as tree. Now, the instrument of this axe's salvation was a tree. And the instrument of our salvation was a tree. Jesus was hung on a cross. He died for us while we were still sinners. God used a tree as an instrument to redeem us from our natural state. Look at Romans 5.8 and Romans 6.23b. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while when? While we were still sinners. We were still sinners. Did we deserve what Jesus did for us? No, because we were sinners. What does sin deserve? Scripture just told us a minute ago, Romans 6.23, the first part, the wages of sin is? death. That's what we deserve. But God loved us so much that while we were still sinners, while we were undeserving, he sent Jesus to die for us. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but then it goes on to say this, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you a question. Can you earn a free gift? No, because then it's not free, is it? If you have to do something to earn it, it's not free. Christmas morning, you got the presents laid out. Your kids come down. They're excited. They're ready to open the presents. And you say, ah, before you open a single one. You got to do the dishes and the laundry and the lawn. And they're like, it's the middle of winter. The lawn's brown and dead. Do it anyway. Are those gifts? Not at that point. So what do we do instead on Christmas morning? We just enjoy watching our children open up those presents. Why? Because while they are still sinners, we love them. This is the way our Heavenly Father looks at us. In our undeserving state, he came to earth and he did everything that he could do, defied the natural order. God became a man. He defied the natural order. That sinless man, Jesus, God, who never committed a sin, defied the natural order by never committing a sin. He defied the natural order by taking punishment and he didn't deserve punishment. We deserve it, clearly. Scripture makes that apparent. Life makes that apparent. Jesus didn't deserve it, and he suffered for our sins. God shattered the natural order so that we might be changed, so that 
this thing that shouldn't float could float. This Allen that deserves condemnation and death could be lifted up, could be saved, could be changed. Now, Elisha said two words to this guy when the axe had floated to the top. He said, grab it. Grab it. And what did the guy do? What do you think he did? He sit there and think about it? No. I, what are the implications of grabbing the floating axe head? I don't know if I really believe that it's floating. I need to sit down and really ponder this. You know, do I do I really want to commit myself to picking up that axe head? Or do you think he just reached out and did it? Salvation is exactly the same way. The opportunity is right there for us. All we have to do is grab it. Our rescue from our natural sinful state is available, but only if we reach out and take it. Forgiveness is available, but it is not automatic. Everybody say that. Forgiveness is available, but it is not automatic. It's there. It's up to us to reach out and grab it. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If. It's a conditional statement. The only way to be saved is if. You make Jesus your Lord, and you believe he is who he said he is, and you believe in what he did for you on the cross. Now, this word believe in English is not an adequate word. English is an interesting language. Um, uh, it's very helpful in articulating some things, and it's not very helpful in articulating other things. When... Um, uh, when we look at this word that we translate believe, English is just not good enough to translate the word. The, the word in the, in the New Testament, the Greek word is pistuo. Everybody say pistuo. Pistuo is a verb for faith. And in English, we don't have a verb for faith. Well, I went out faithing one day. You know, there's no such word in English. And so we translate it believe. Now, the reason believe falls short is because belief can be just simple intellectual assent. How many of you believe that Mexico is south of the United States? Raise your hand. You believe it because you've seen it on maps. You can testify to it because of what you've been told and whatnot. But how many of you have been to Mexico? Raise your hand. Those of you who've been to Mexico, you pistuoed that Mexico was actually there, and you went. You trusted somebody. You flew in a plane or rode in a boat or drove in a car to get there. You put your faith in it. Now, right now, I'm sitting on a stool. I'm pistuoing in this stool. I am trusting with all of my weight that this stool is going to hold me up. That's different 
than believing that the ceiling is there. I'm not putting any faith in the ceiling right now, am I? I'm not trusting that ceiling to hold me up. I just believe it's there. That's intellectual assent. This is faith. Pistuo means to put absolute, 100% total trust in. So now let's read that again. Romans 10, 13, or 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and pistuo in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you put your faith in what he did, you will be saved. It's not enough to just say, yep, Jesus lived and died and got up and so I must be getting, going to heaven. That's intellectual assent. But to trust that what he did is going to save you from hell is pistuo. That's grabbing it. That's the verb. Taking hold of it. Grabbing on. Romans 10, 13. I love this verse of scripture. One of my favorite verses of scripture in all of the Bible because it is so full of good news. What does Romans 10, 13 say? Everyone. Who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Jeffrey Dahmer, if he called on the name of the Lord, would be saved. Adolf Hitler, you. We are all sinners. Some have committed more egregious sins than others, but all of us are in our sinful natural state, deserving of condemnation. But everyone who does what? Calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who grabs it will be saved. It doesn't mean everyone will be saved, because there are those who won't grab it. There are those who will say, I'm i got to think about it some more. It sounds too good to be true. Well, it sounds too simple. Salvation can't really be as simple as just believing. There's got to be a laundry list of stuff I've got to do in order to be saved, right? These are the things people think. Well, I just, I don't believe it because it doesn't seem very rational. In that moment when the axe head was floating was that guy worried about what's rational what's logical what makes sense is this is is this naturally occurring he wasn't trying he wasn't worried about the science of it he wasn't worried about any of those details he said all right i am going to accept it and receive it and he grabbed it today maybe the lord's speaking to you You've gone to church for years and years and years. You've been doing a lot of good things. You've been trusting in your good works maybe to save you and your good deeds and trusting in comparing yourself to other people. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, so I must be going to heaven. I'm not as bad as that guy that's in prison, so I must be going to heaven. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not a womanizer. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that, so I must be okay. But here's the fact. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God We all deserve condemnation. If you're here today and you've been depending on your own self, you're not enough. 
If this guy who dropped the axe head had depended on himself to save the day, it was hopeless. That axe head, for all intents and purposes, was gone. And it took a miracle. God defying the natural order, and then it took him accepting that miracle in order for the day to be saved. Same exact thing is true in our spiritual lives. Maybe you're here today and you have never said, all right, Lord, I accept it. I believe it. I receive it. Right now, that salvation thing, Jesus, that you did for me on the cross, I'm grabbing it. Today is the day and your opportunity to grab it. Remember, prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes me. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask all of us to pray a prayer. And if you've never prayed to God to accept what Jesus has done for you, this is your opportunity. But you know what? Prayer doesn't change God. This doesn't make him go, oh, yeah, you prayed that prayer, and so now I like you, and I'm going to save you. The prayer changes you from not believing, from not pistuoing to pistuoing, from not faithing to faithing. There's nothing magical about the words that I'm going to say. There's nothing mystical about it. Maybe you've heard in other churches somebody call this the, the sinner's prayer or something like that. Uh, I think it's silly to name it because it, it, it doesn't even have to be an it. When I became a Christian, I didn't pray some prayer. I, I knew the Lord was calling me to accept salvation, and I said, okay, God, I accept it. And he changed me in an instant. Words are not the important thing. What's going on in here is the important thing. What's the Lord saying to you? What's he speaking to you about today? If you're a follower of Jesus, is he saying, you know what, it's time to attune yourself to my work by praying about everything and recognize that I'm interested in every detail of your life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I believe with everything in me that God is calling you today and he's saying, psst, grab it. And the best thing that you could do from now through all eternity is to grab it. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.